This week, we talk highlights from summer camp. In the news segment, a hacker capitalizes on configuration mistakes, bounties become bigger, XXE and PHP, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. False positives suck. With so many mobile apps to test, how much time will you waste on false positives? Eliminate them today with NowSecure. Only NowSecure automates static, dynamic, and interactive testing on real Android and iOS devices. Now you get speed, accuracy, and efficiency for DevOps, plus the broadest coverage of security, compliance, and privacy issues. Why waste time on false positives? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash NowSecure to learn how to scale your mobile app sec testing with NowSecure. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 72, recorded August 12th, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hey, Matt. Happy Monday. I survived the week. So you did. It looks like maybe John didn't. We don't have John with us this week. But um, I think we can still forge ahead, and we'll hope that John isn't still arguing about open containers in Vegas, because um, I know how he loves his security there. <clears throat> Register for our upcoming webcasts with Signal Sciences by going to securityweekly.com webcasts. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library at securityweekly.com on-demand. Some of you told us that you are overwhelmed by the amount of content we distribute. To help you get selected topics you're interested in, join our new listener interest list. Sign up for a list and select your interests by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. You can also now submit your suggestions for guests in our recently released guest suggestion form. Go to securityweekly.com slash guests and enter your suggestions. So, Matt, last week, hordes of bugs and bug hunters descended on Vegas for what's become known as Hacker Summer Camp. It's a week of B-sides, Black Hat, Diana Initiative, DEF CON, um, tons of parties, tons of vendor parties, tons of other smaller social events, and uh, tons of things that I know kept you and the rest of the Security Weekly staff pretty busy. So um, any, what would you like to dive in from, from highlights of the week that you managed to survive? Well, I so I went to Vegas and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. It's actually not a lousy <laughs> T-shirt. I had to thank Extra Hop for the little gamification of Black Hat. Uh, two charities, uh, they donated some money to two great charities. It was the Red Team versus Blue Team. Red Team won, of course, because they hacked the game. That's that's basically what we decided. That's why the Red Team won. Uh, and Extra Hop donated ten thousand dollars to Hackers for Charity. And two thousand dollars 
to code.org, which I think is just fantastic. So I want to thank the extra hop team, uh, for the sponsorship, for those donations. It was uh, a really interesting part of black hat as Paul and I were running around doing, uh, interviews for, for almost the whole week. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I had to, I had to do the plug. So I wore the t-shirt today because it's, it's probably one of the few things I brought home from Vegas. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic shout out. And it's pretty cool to see too that a, a handful of vendors are starting to go that route of, hey, well, rather than give out swag that in t-shirts that nobody's going to wear um, or will want to wear or just swag that they're going to throw away, they started to say, hey, why don't we just like give some money to a charity? Um, so yeah, so that that's a great trend and hopefully it only gets bigger. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, Tenable did this a couple of years ago at Black Hat when we did the level up theme. Uh, and it worked really well at Black Hat for those sponsors that are out there. Gamification of something like Black Hat actually works because I think the audience makes it interesting, right? And Extra Hop was really happy with the engagement. It really created some interesting buzz, a lot of social media push during the week. But they did it for great causes. Hackers for Charity could not do their auction last year at DerbyCon because of some of the hotel restrictions. Getting that extra $10,000 really helps them out. You know, code.org and the ability to help people uh, do better coding and secure code. Also, a very great cause for this show. And so, it, I, I just hats off to them. They approached us and said, Would we be interested? We said, Absolutely. You know, and, and we definitely uh, had some fun with it uh, up in the suite. That's awesome. So, definitely thumbs up for wearing the shirt and giving them a plug. Um, and yep. so, yeah, go ahead. I mean, the other thing is, for people who don't know, we did 28 micro interviews. I did 14. Paul did 14 over the two days of Black Hat. We actually did two live shows. We did a Paul Security Weekly and an Enterprise Security Weekly from the suite. And then I did another 10 interviews at DEF CON, two at Blue Team Village on Friday and eight at Social Engineer Village on Saturday. And all that content will come on to the different programs over the next few weeks. I, I think the team estimated we did something like 15 hours of recording in four days. It's a lot of content and we'll get that back out. But the interesting thing for me is I did a lot of interviews, Mike, on application security. We're seeing a lot more interest and a lot more sponsors talking about the AppSec problem. We're going to talk about some of the issues on the next segment with news, but we were talking about API security. We're talking about mobile app security. We're talking about, you know, what do we need to do for DevSecOps to make the sec part of DevSecOps really work? I mean, some really great content that came out of some of those interview segments. Like I said, a lot of that will go to Enterprise Security Weekly, but I think some really good cross potential content for this show just because we are seeing a lot more interest in the AppSec stuff. That's really cool and absolutely looking forward to seeing a lot of that content. And what also struck me, and I think maybe you can give a little bit of a teaser of some of the interviews you had, but I think a lot of the conversations on the AppSec side have moved away from this is a really cool bug or here is another really cool bug into more of the techniques for finding in terms of here's fuzzing or approaches or more how particular bugs fit into a larger threat model, meaning how are they being impacted by sandboxing? How are they being impacted in either positive or um, not so positive ways by better architectures of these environments? And I think that's maybe a little bit what you're kind of teasing out there, talking about API security. Yeah, I mean, 
as we all know, as we move away from these big monolithic single language applications, which were part of a waterfall approach, which you know went through months and months of coding and testing before they went out, to a highly distributed application, microservice-based architectures leveraging containers, cloud, multi-cloud, hybrid, we've created a lot of complexity with our applications. And it's not necessarily about the bug per se. Now, look, bugs are still important, don't get me wrong. But if we chase the bug, we're gonna forget about some of the other stuff that's gonna impact us. And, and some of the news stories I think are relevant to this point. We're spinning up architectures and infrastructure with code. How are we validating that code and the configuration of that code, also known as the infrastructure, prior to spinning it up and getting it out there? Because what we're seeing now, I think, is a lot more misconfiguration than vulner traditional vulnerabilities or bugs that are creating breaches. And so if we only focus on the bug and the bug bounty side and, and the next zero-day vulnerability, we're missing a whole bunch of other stuff. That only gets exacerbated by the fact that we have all these APIs communicating in this very diverse environment. Some people don't even know where those endpoints are, let alone how they're communicating, how they're authenticating for communication, how we're dealing with all the credentials for our service accounts and all these APIs to communicate. This is a lot of the stuff we talked about in these micro interviews across multiple vendors is all these pieces that need to be addressed in this really, really complex application environment. And hopefully one of the themes that will also come out there is that the you know APIs are also absolutely part of that software, that, that supply chain um, uh, problem as well. I think that was one of the other, I think it was Microsoft was talking about supply chain risks. And they were focusing a lot on the people aspect. Not so much that, of course, you know, people maybe will make mistakes, but who, what is the development environment? What are the security practices of the orgs building these APIs? So just as you're saying, we're tying a bunch of APIs together, but we're actually not necessarily even doing it within our own microservices systems. We're talking to other companies' systems. And there's a lot of trust without a greater sense of confidence in that trust, meaning how do we know, we know what we're talking in terms of the API, it's TLS configuration, the data going in, the data coming out, but what if we're storing data behind that API? How is that data being protected? And it just really goes back to those classic ideas of supply chain risk and people, meaning can we actually move the whole industry onto better uh, like zero trust models, beyond corp style models, where uh, you're locking down developer endpoints, customer representative endpoints, things like that. So I think these are a lot of themes that at least I was paying attention to on some of the stuff that stood out to me. We talked a little bit about uh, the software bill of materials, which the federal government's trying to push. And that makes a lot of sense to understand where the source is coming from, understanding all the components of an application. We're not seeing a lot of adoption of the software bill of materials yet. And that's a supply chain issue I think we have to continue to focus on in the industry. But you're seeing a little bit. One of the interviews I did was on this theme of zero trust. And, and I think it's interesting because when people think zero trust, they think network, they think endpoint, they think identity. Typically is where you think of zero trust. And zero trust networking was kind of the base for a long, long time. I actually did an interview around zero trust 
more from an application micro-segmentation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really interesting concept for us in the application space because if each of those components of the application had a zero trust model and you had to create a trust relationship between what communicates to what, that now allows us to monitor for behavior and then block malicious behavior in these applications. That's this kind of new theme that's coming. And the way I describe it, a lot of people you know, talk about identity as the perimeter. It is, but I think it's the identity and the interaction with the application that really is that perimeter. Can this user or service account talk to this application or this piece of code? Yes or no. And if it can, let it go through. If it can't, then block it. And that's a level of uh, kind of evolving technology we haven't seen before because we always try to do this stuff at the network or at the endpoint layer. Now people are starting to take that up the stack a little higher to the identity and the actual application and code. And I think that's where we're going to continue to see some improvements. And that's really interesting because I think it speaks a lot to that. Um, if we go back and look at the parallel of like the AV community, the idea that signatures or just like a static identity um, is, you know, old school. It's, it, it doesn't scale very well and it's easy, more easily bypassed as opposed to behavioral approaches that are saying, what is this app actually doing as opposed to how did it attest its identity as. And um, that's really interesting because, yeah, I think I don't typically um, approach that idea of zero trust from the service to service identity, but it totally makes sense because you really want, that's, that's where a lot of the data, that, that's where data can be exfiltrated. You don't have, you either can get access by a developer's credentials or somebody else's compromised credentials and you assume their identity or you just compromise some misconfiguration, which is the classic case, um, and you pull data out of some service that, you know, was it intended to leak so much data? Yeah, and I think what's really interesting in this market now is th- this move to behavior-based stuff. But behavior is not easy. It's not, hard, it's not easy to understand what normal behavior looks like. But if you're using a zero-trust approach to behavior, whitelisting good activity, now you can really start to look at some malicious behavior. Look, maybe maybe it has to go through. Maybe you have to learn on it for a while before you realize to block it. But I think that's the next evolution of where we're going. That's where the machine learning algorithms and some of the AI algorithms that everybody talks about but doesn't really understand how it's going to help us potentially is where that helps us. And if we can do that effectively, then we can protect some of these environments that are really complex in a better way. So we'll see where this technology goes, but definitely some really interesting emerging stuff in the space. Yeah, very cool. And I think we talked, it was either last week or or the the last episode about uh, Microsoft moving to this space and how they were taking this behavior-based approach. But rather than focusing on a combination of indicators of good software and indicators of bad software by combining the two, they just said, we're only going to look for indicators of malicious software. And that made it harder for adversaries to work against their ML models, which is a pretty, you know, cool approach to, to that type of um, to, to that type of thing. And I think at um, WWDC uh, back in June, Apple had announced a, a uh, detection for live person, or basically, is this a human interacting with their iPhone? And um, the intent there, I think, is more about how can they tamp down on things like 
fraud that may be click fraud or remote access tools that are taking over and I like a compromised iPhone and clicking on send, you know, clicking on transactions, clicking on buttons, as opposed to a human is actually doing it. Um, so we're seeing this throughout the stack too. this whole this whole um, movement into looking at behavior. So that, that those that those are definitely a uh, that's definitely a uh, interview I'm looking forward to. Uh, yeah, agreed. Now, did you get on the floor much at Black? I did not. I, I was down there, I think, like 45 minutes total in two days. I went to the Extra Hop booth twice. I stopped at one other booth, said hi to a couple people, and that was it. So I didn't get a chance to walk the floor this year. I'm just curious, Mike, if you got a chance to walk the flo floor, and were there some interesting themes out there that you noticed? So I didn't get the chance to walk the floor too much because unfortunately I got there for um, half of half of Black Hat. But I did go and grill a bunch of my friends and coworkers who were there just to get a sense of what was going on. And there was a lot of hardware. Um, I guess we'll say relatively speaking, a lot more about hardware focus. And part of that we can see and kind of guess that you know IoT has become or a big thing for last couple years, of course, but also more a focus on um, mobile and mobile chips rather than at the software stack. So one of the things that was really cool to see was um, Apple begin to perhaps slowly, but we can say, I think, surely open up about its transparency, about what, you know, what they're doing inside their um, phones, not only at the iOS layer, but within their chipsets and building trust models for secure boot. So that type of aspect was really neat and seeing more about a focus on hardware that's looking at more about the high-end devices rather than just really small, cheap IoT kit that are you kind of can roll your eyes at and kind of shrug and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to have some vulnerabilities in it. Um, and I think, what was the other thing? Look, looking through a couple of notes that I had made too, is um, uh, also still, I think, uh, protocols are still pretty interesting. So still people poking around Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, um, whatever they can from remotely exploitable vulnerabilities. Because of course, that, those are what are the most interesting as well as the most impactful. So I think kind of at a, at a glance, those were a bunch of things that I would call out that came across my radar. Uh, interesting. That's great. <clears throat> like I said, I didn't see a lot of news items this week. I think the biggest news item was semantic sale to Broadcom. Um, I'm sure there were a bunch of product announcements I just haven't gotten through yet, having only been home for a couple days. Yeah, I think, I don't know if maybe all the, the product announcements get thrown over to RSA and then Black Hat gets in more of the like program or maybe like community outreach type of announcements. But yeah, you're right. I didn't see anything too big on the, on the business side, I think. No, oh, which is surprising. I, I mean, granted, this is more of a research conference, and you would expect some of that research to come out, which it, do, it did and does. And then you see a lot of that over at DEF CON on, on Friday and Saturday in the different villages. You know, there's a lot of activity going on over there for, for people who have not gone over there. But last year, I just I, I, I recall more product announcements along with it. Uh, and a couple came out the week before, but like I said, I didn't see a lot of news on product stuff uh, this week when we were at Black Hat. Yeah, and I wonder, it's not like we've been without security product news through the year, too, which I think is good. But um, we've also seen, like, 
some of the big players, like I mentioned Apple, WWDC, Google has their own events, AWS has their own events. Um, and, and we've seen actually a lot of very security focused and product announcements on their services or their products um, at those events. So I just kind of wonder, um, will this also be a kind of maybe a good thing for Black Hat and get, let it um, come around to refocusing on just some really good forward thinking research? Let's hope so. For the for the future of the conference, actually, I'm worried that Black Hat's getting a little too commercial, and if it gets too commercial, I'm afraid that we lose some of the research aspects of the conference. So let's hope it can focus more on the research side and keep that conference together. Hope so. And there were some cool. Speaking of research, just um, th there were two really cool things, um, which. Also, hopefully everybody updated your phone before you went to Black Hat, um, or you've at least updated it by now, or and you have automatic updates turned on, because there were a bunch of presentations around um, remote attacks against iOS, uh, essentially, uh, you know, a, a what was called commonly the, the zero click or no user interaction, um, receiving a SMS that can essentially leak memory space from the um, from your iMessages. Um, and well, th there was some neat research that was perhaps, you know, not as practical, but about attacking uh, Face ID. But what was neat here is that the researchers, I think this was Tencent Labs, if I remember correctly, hope I am, um, but they were demonstrating attacks against the algorithm itself and how it implements its liveness check for Face ID. Um, and essentially they figured out that you can put on, you know, get a pair of glasses and here are is some you know some white cardboard around the eyes and a little bit of a white dot you know piece of white paper in the middle for the pupil and that was a way to start to weaken the algorithm's uh, mechanism uh, of doing the liveness check basically meaning is it staring at an actual human versus a paper printout of, of a human as a, and that would be the way to bypass um, the app so there was a lot of really cool um, uh, really deep technical research going on and it was also really cool to see them taking advantage and attacking algorithms as well. And that's an area where I hope we do see a lot more of this adversarial um, uh, approaches demonstrated rather than just be kind of bandied about or talked about as um, possibilities. Interesting. Cool research. And um, one other thing that was there, there was actually going back to the ideas of themes, um, you know, start off with uh, Dino Daisovi's keynote, um, which really boiled down to people are important to DevOps and DevSecOps. And I think that is um, definitely not a controversial theme. If anything, it's one of those things that's probably harder to actually adopt in practice because it takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of a cultural shift. But there was also another um, presentation from uh, Netflix, which, again, is, uh, is one of the uh, usual suspects that I often refer to <laughs> on the podcast. Um, but this was also talking about um, dealing with software dependencies, supply chain, and it was talking about how to scale the process and use automation. But a lot of the gist of the presentation was really about people and processes. It wasn't so much here is the one tool that solves everything. It was more of here is a tool that helps our security team have a better triage process that starts with the CVSS score, but then figures out is this actually a internet facing or an internal facing app? Is it 
under active exploitation, meaning there is anything from, you know, exploit code publicly available or threat intel service um, sources are indicating as being attacked, as well as can this actual vulnerability be exploited? Or is this just sitting in some dead code that the app actually isn't exercising? And so again, those are all types of things that take people to understand and people to appreciate. Um, so with all the talk of automation with a lot of tools, I don't think we're going to get rid of those security teams, that security analysis and security insight, but hopefully we're going to be making their, their work easier so that rather than trying to deal with just looking at 10 or so dependencies within an application, we can look at the hundred or thousand dependencies that are parts of these massive either monoliths or these massive distributed microservices. Yeah, I saw Dino's keynote a couple years ago when he did it in Asia. And at, at that point, he was talking about how the technology was going to accelerate aspects of the application and the attack surface on the app. Now he's shifted over to the people side because the technology's there. The tools are definitely there. But it's the integration of the tools into the process and leveraging the people. And that's why I think the people process side of this is the interesting part. I think we have some really, really good tools out there that have evolved over the past few years in the space, but it's bringing all those tools together in a way that allows the people to be more efficient and effective in their daily jobs to really understand where is the highest criticality vulnerability? We saw this in the device vulnerability management space over the past few years. Now you're starting to see that concept come into the application side. And when you can understand the app, the components of the app, the criticality of the app, maybe other aspects of the application itself, now I can start to do a better job prioritizing where some of these bugs are so that I can realize, oh, well, there is an active threat in this library, but I'm not using that library. It's not being instantiated. Therefore, I don't have to do anything with it versus the threat that's out there that's being exploited that is in a binary or piece of code that, that has to be addressed, right? And it's, under, it's bringing all those pieces together to just be more effective in our jobs. Yeah, and it's that idea of everybody loves to throw out some type of metric around basically a line that's going up and to the right about the number of vulnerabilities being discovered, identified, announced, the number of CVEs, um, which is a good observation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all those bugs, you know, that line actually wasn't flat beforehand. It possibly just means we are identifying more of the bugs more quickly, but it also, you know, means you can't get overwhelmed by every single bug needs to be a you know fixed at an equal SLA or within it you know within an SLA because just like you were saying not all of them are going to be exploited or exploitable and you do need to stay focused on building software and why not start to look into the architectures and sandboxing so the ways that you can minimize the impact in case you know a vulnerability does occur so, and actually that, that made me think too, I'm curious, um, you were hanging out the, the blue team village and it's great to see that being one of the, the villages, of course, in, in DEF CON, I think they're up to at least a dozen now, if not more. Um, but I wanted, I was curious too, um, anything in particular stand out from what was a, a theme or commonality amongst the, the blue team village that you saw? I, I think the interesting part of the blue team village for me is the number of people that were coming over to check out what was going on with the blue team. If I think about DEF CON, I think about it as a red team event, right? right. It's where yeah, all the exactly. offensive guys go to learn the latest techniques. Here you have a village dedicated to the blue team. 
and you have a lot of people coming over really trying to understand how to defend on the other side. And again, I'm a blue teamer traditionally, having done most of my career on the blue team side of the the house. I was never a full-blown red teamer. In my early days of consulting, I did pieces of it, but not to what we're doing today on the red team side, right? So I was very interested to see the blue teamers there learning with the red teamers and really understanding. And, And the two interviews I did was actually talking about why the blue team and the red teams need to work together. Because when you go out and hire a red teamer to do a penetration test on your application, the blue teamers need to see the results of that so they can do a better job defending the applications. And and some of the complaints we see and hear is that, yeah, we do this great application penetration test, but I don't see the results. And so I don't know how to fix my processes to better protect the applications. So they want to see a lot more uh, coordination, cooperation between the red and the blue teams. Um, And so I think for red teamers that are out there that are independent red teamers, make sure those results are getting back into those blue teams because those blue teamers really want that data to do a better job. And that was kind of the the theme out of that village, which which was great to hear. That, that is great to hear. And especially too, you know, I, I kind of add to that in the sense of that red team, you know, it, it's always the idea like, sure, a red team is going to, so to speak, win or red team is going to get in. But I think that's kind of a, 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 a not a great way to characterize that type of approach. The red team should be more focused on testing a process or testing the assumptions that you know, an organization or that the blue blue team has made, because maybe the blue team says, yes, we do have this capability, detection capability for our production systems in our containers. But perhaps the red team demonstrates, ah, you forgot about this one syscall, or you aren't even being, you are logging all your syscall information, but you're actually not doing any alerting, any monitoring of it, things like that. So those are the types of scenarios that are really just building on what you said, that that's what the blue team needs to hear about. It's really cool often to see, you know, how did, you know, how did a red team get in? How did they compromise or reach, attain a goal? But without explaining the why and the how, as well as a little bit of those insights of what could we have done differently rather than just, we need to patch a bunch of systems. It's, we should have done X or Y differently, and that would have made their team their their approach a lot harder. Yep. Yep, and that's what the blue teamers want. They just want the data so they can do a better job. Exactly. Let's share the data, hack all the things, defend all the things. So, um, any any final thoughts on uh, on the um, on the week or anything else you want to uh, share with us? Should anyone else decide to venture into uh, a week of Vegas for for that slew of conferences? It's exhausting to be prepared. You do a lot of partying. Uh, you potentially miss a flight or two, <clears throat> Paul. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's it, look. There's there's a lot to learn, and it's a great week for people who are in the industry who want to see the breadth. I think B-Sides does a really fantastic job with what it does at the community level. Got a lot of stuff going on at Black Hat and then DEF CON in the villages. That, that is, it's an intense week for anybody who goes, but for those who can do it, like Jason Albuquerque, who, I mean, was literally there for like 10 days, close to 10 days. I mean, it's exhausting, but he's like, I learned a ton and, and definitely enjoyed the experience. 
that's fantastic. Well, we're absolutely going to be looking forward to the interviews as they come out through a bunch of, through uh, several of the different shows throughout the next couple of weeks. And um, we're also going to happy that your voice survived. We're going to give your voice a quick break um, for a moment, Matt, and we're going to take a quick break ourselves and we're going to return with news of the week. Too many alerts and not enough action? It's time to get SaltStack. SaltStack is an intelligent IT automation platform that detects security issues in critical business systems and then actually fixes them. With SaltStack, security and IT teams work together to define custom security policies with certified checks for CIS, DISA-STIGs, and more. You can scan systems for millions of compliance checks in minutes. Remediate compliance and vulnerability issues with powerful automation all in a single platform. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SaltStack to learn more. Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records. All from a single, unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman. Security Weekly will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia, this October 10th through 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a $100 discount to attend the two-day conference. Use discount code HH19SW when you register or go to securityweekly.com slash hackerhalted and register there. Make sure you check out the keynote, Alasadorian, and Mr. Jeff Mann's talk as well. So Matt, we were just talking about some of the, the dearth of product news coming out of Black Hat, but I think there actually has been quite a bit of um, cybersecurity news in the last couple of weeks anyway. So both from Black Hat and outside of Black Hat. Probably one of the more interesting ones or notable, notable ones is um, the breach um, reported by Capital One. and. Um, this was pretty interesting because, from what I understand, it sounds like it was a cascade of configuration problems that caused this. So essentially, a commercial web app firewall uh, was misconfigured. Um, attacker was able to grab the credentials, the IAM credentials used by that WAF, and then pivoted from there to access S3 buckets. So kind of simple, kind of straightforward, but uh, pretty impactful. And um, yeah, kind of a, if anything, sort of a story that we've heard before. Yeah, and the reason I pulled this article in is because they only, they're, they're scratching the surface. The article is labeled the problem with web app security. And they talk about the WAF. Well, there's your problem right there in itself. Application security is way more than the WAF, right? And, and, and the best line in this is article is 99 problems and WAFs are just one. But then the article spends all this time on the web app firewall. So <laughs> you and I have a little history with this, Mike, right? <laughs> In that WAFs are only one part of this, and this sits on the perimeter. And this is why I'm not a big firewall fan in general, because a firewall can't see a lot of stuff. 
And what it can see, sometimes it can and can't block because nobody's going to stop a transaction and, and bring down the business, right? The root of a lot of these issues is configuration. And here we are talking about the web app firewall when really what's going on is we're not validating the configuration of our infrastructure and all these different services that we're using. Paul and I have been talking about this for the past couple months when we did uh, a webcast with SaltStack and, 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 and a couple others because we're seeing this trend of nobody's looking at the darn configurations. We're so worried about doing static code analysis and doing uh, dynamic testing and the WAF and the RAS that we're not looking at the basic configuration going, oh, why do we have it configured that way? It's misconfigured. And one of my interviews at Black Hat, we, we kind of dug into this a little bit. My, my thesis is configuration isn't sexy. It's way more fun to look for vulnerabilities or to look for bugs or to look for the latest exploit than it is to do some basic hygiene of just verifying that your configurations are configured correctly. And here we are with another configuration breach. Absolutely. I think th there's also a bit of an aspect now, this isn't necessarily um, as spe specifically what happened with Capital One. I think, I, I know Capital One has actually made, they're, they're one of the banks that actually made a big deal about really pushing into the cloud. So it's not like they are without domain knowledge in the area or expertise in the area. So it's also the idea, you know, an example of, you know, it can happen to the best of, of, of the blue teams out there. But there's also the idea of speaking about WAFs more in general, it's, you know, just relying on them or diving into them is a little bit of that idea that we're just going to lift and shift into the cloud rather than adopting like a cloud native approach to your application security. Meaning, you know, cloud native approach is more of how much, how much can we restrict what access these applications have? And basically what I'm also describing, how much can we go through and minimize the, the privileges needed for these configurations or for these accounts that these the, these different services need and what they need access to. And you're totally right that it's not the cool stuff to do. Um, it's also complex and, you know, small mistakes can have really big impacts. So, for example, if this if it's true that, for example, the, the, the WAF credentials had read access to S3 buckets, why is that? Your WAF isn't inspecting them. Your WAF is ostensibly just inspecting inbound traffic. Maybe it's looking at a little bit of outbound traffic, but WAFs kind of don't really do that um, either well or, or to, to any highly scalable degree that I've come across. Um, so it's also one of those things that if DevOps teams or if people are being driven to say, oh, look, we have the cloud, we can deploy fast, we can do things fast. But if one of the ways to continue to move fast is just to go with, yeah, this open configuration or this high, you know, large privilege grant is the easiest way to go forward, then that's actually a bit of an anti-pattern to get in front of, or that's the wrong behavior we want to be driving. Yeah, two points on this one. Number one is I think we've got to get ahead of the deployment of the infrastructure and really understand the interdependencies of all these different services that are up there. And it, this is not an easy challenge, by the way, but visibility into how that infrastructure is being configured has to be one of the things we have to focus on. Because if we would have caught that early on, we would have said, well, wait a minute, why does the WAF need read access to the S3 buckets that potentially could leak data? That makes no sense, right? 
But because of the complexity in a cloud native environment, which Capital One is it was a real big adopter of cloud native, uh, it's, it's hard to get that visibility. It's hard to see that. That's the first piece. And your lift and shift example, and we are still seeing a lot of lift and shift. And so even in that environment, though, there are configurations that have to be done well in your AWS accounts for your EC2 instances and some of the other tools that you're using, even a lift and shift. So this doesn't go away whether you're just doing basic lift and shift or you're doing full cloud native uh, uh, re-architecture, you still have to do the basic configuration validations and, and we're just forgetting about them. And, and look, we didn't do a good job of this when we were on-prem either, so it doesn't surprise me that we're not doing a good job in the cloud. Right, and it's the, the, the one thing that does surprise me, or I guess that, that makes me a little bit sadder about the situation is that the cloud should at least give us better visibility um, because we, you know, there's a lot of the cloud um, services have some great granularity, but with that becomes a lot of confusion about like, uh, what exactly privileges do we need? How do we get down to the absolute, basically that, what is it, 30 year, 40 year old aphorism to say, you know, least privilege access. Yeah. Um, but being able to, to enforce that becomes a lot more complex. Yeah, and, and, and across all these interdependencies, that's the other issue. There's so yeah. many interdependencies in the cloud and that where you think you may be doing least privilege in one place might actually not be least privilege in another place. And it's understanding that that I think is still pretty difficult. And, and the other thing is everybody's doing this after the fact. So we're waiting until the infrastructure is spun up to do these checks. And we all know that within 15 seconds of that environment being spun up, China's starting to port scan the thing, right? So <laughs> I, I think that's a little late. I'd like to see it earlier in the process so that we could say, wait a minute, we sure we wanted to, to configure the environment that way when we spin it up? Maybe we want to check there. So that's where I see some really interesting opportunity for the future. Yeah, and I think we also have some opportunities for the cloud providers to help with this. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was Microsoft Azure. Um, their security part of their security center would basically say, "Hey, check out this account has this role, but it hasn't actually touched any asset that has required this role in X amount of time. Maybe it's time to get rid of it." And I think that idea of just start to kind of decay on um, the 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 um, uh, the, what a role can do over time if they're not using it is kind of smart. So it's just that, sure, maybe we you know made this configuration, but it was misconfigured with too much, and the service actually can see what's going on, and it can report and say, hey, it's crickets over here. Why don't we just turn this off for now? Yeah, one of the interviews I forgot to mention on the last segment is just-in-time access and the nice. ability to provide yep. just-in-time access on a limited time scale so that you don't have those credentials sitting around. It's providing least access with a time bound behind it so that although you're giving them access for this amount of time with these privileges, it's going to expire so these accounts aren't going to hang around. And I thought that was really interesting, kind of to that Microsoft of, hey, identify it. They're actually saying, no, 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 that's the way you're going to get access in this environment. It's going to be limited and it's going to be time-based. 
So there's also kind of going to take a chance for a segue here and go from the idea of how we're approaching, you know, cloud native and those designs around configurations and identity management. Um, let's go to the other end of that um, spectrum to the browser and how it is interacting with websites. So Chrome uh, recently announced that they're going to remove that um, basically how the, the nav bar turns green for EV certs, extended validation certs. Essentially, they're saying, we thought this was a good idea to give users a way to understand when they're interacting with a website that actually says that the certificate belongs to this website, rather than it's just a, you know, they, you know, click here and pass through. But the idea of the EV cert kind of never took on. And the idea of signal as a signal to users um, it just never picked up because users were like, oh, something's green, I'll just continue on. Or, oh, I didn't even notice that that, that part of the nav bar turned green when this weird esoteric aspect of a certificate um, was confirmed with extended validation, which for my cynical friends out there just means that the certificate authorities basically charge more money for a particular type of cert. So I was, I was a little confused by this one because mm. – to me, green means good, yep. and I do notice it. Now, maybe the basic user doesn't, but why go backwards? To me, this is going backwards uh, to a point where what used to be something we could visualize, it, they're, they're just taking it away. I, I didn't understand this one at all. So I, I like this approach um, in the sense of there's, especially on mobile devices, there's a very little screen real estate to be able to show this. Now, I will admit, um, I do always notice the green, but by the same token, what? Let, let's take a step back and think, what are we trying to defend against or what's our threat model that we're trying to address here? And it's the idea that it's phishing and we have to like train users to recognize that, yeah, this is the securityweekly.com website versus this is the security weekly with a little like one instead of an L site that's trying to fish us. What if we started pushing people to have stronger two-factor authentication? Or what if we even went to WebAuthn and we took the um, attestation of the domain names out of the users basically understanding and you know and trying to to decipher what that URL looks like and put it into the browser itself and say, here are the credentials for this domain and here's the identity tied to it. Hey, other domain, who are you? I'm I'm only allowed to talk to these domains. So I think I, I get what you're saying there, but I don't think we're actually losing anything by this. And I think we have actually better ways to address the ideas of phishing rather than just trying to keep pushing the burden on the users to like say, yeah, green means go. But what if their certificate is actually signed and it's a totally legit certificate? It turns green, but it doesn't actually say Capital One. Maybe it says like the name of the Capital One, like a holding company behind it, something like that, or a bank. So there are also these other edge cases where it can be kind of confusing for users too, even when they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. That, <clears throat> excuse me. That kind of leads into this HTTP desync attacks because this was the yeah. other one that was interesting, right? As we think about the, the web communication, part of it's the browser, part of it's the transport layer, right? And so here is the request smuggling reborn discussion around HTTP. So my question to you, um, because you know this way better than I do, is if we're using HTTPS, is this still possible? Or is this only because it's HTTP and not 
S? So that is a great question. And it's one of those things that um, the, the request smuggling was, I think it was in 2004 when it first came up. It was really cool, really interesting, and then kind of disappeared for about a decade until good old James Kettle, Portswigger, um, brought it back. So to your question, this is actually at the HTTP layer. So it's independent of the S. So it doesn't matter that it's going over TLS or not. It's basically taking advantage of the fact that um, HTTP communication are blobs of text. And these blobs have a preamble of headers, which most people always looked at the verb, you know, get, post, the host header. But there's two important headers that is taken advantage of here, the content length and the transfer encoding. And what this basically means is that typically you'll have a single post request as part of an HTTP request. But, and it simply says, here's a post request. I have 51 characters in here because in the body of it is going to be the username and the password and the identity. Um, but it is possible to actually have a whole bunch of other text after those 51 characters. And what that means is that you have a post request, the body of the request that belongs to that post, that original single request. But then the server says, oh, look, there's some additional text here. And this additional text just so happens to be another get request. And it has its verb, it has a host header, it has all these other things that make it look absolutely like another request. So now I'm going to parse the first one process it, and now it's time to parse the second one. And this is where that smuggling comes in that's really cool and taking advantage of HTTP or taking advantage of trust. And this actually goes back to what you were mentioning about earlier in the first segment about what would a zero trust model look like for applications? And Because right now, what this desync or this request smuggling attack is doing is basically saying there is too much trust between a, like a front end and a back end web server because the back end web server, or sorry, the front end web server has parsed multiple requests. The second request, however, part of this capsulation was created by the attacker, but it just forwards it to the back end server. Back end server says, cool, I was just expecting some information from you, front end server. I'm just gonna do whatever this request tells me to do. And it goes from there. Um, so hopefully that helps clarify it because it's actually, it's a really well-written paper, but it's definitely out of the ordinary for the typical types of attacks we see in the, at the web layer. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I was trying to understand is was this still uh, a, a vulnerability in, in, if you're using SSL or TLS encryption, and it is because it's an underlying HTTP protocol issue. So that means we need a new revision of HTTP to potentially prevent this. Well, the good news is, Matt, glad you mentioned that. We actually do. So HTTP2 um, also introduces essentially multiplexing because basically the, currently web browsers can do, I think, maybe six or so connections to a single origin. And they're trying to basically load a web page as fast as possible. But they're doing it in non-efficient ways just due to the ancient architecture of the HTTP protocol. What HTTP2 did is say, we're going to interleave a whole bunch of different requests. And we're also going to do over uh, TLS by default, ideally. Um, and we're going to basically make these a lot more performant. We're going to give you a little bit of data frames to be able to say, do you have any data to send yet? Cool. 
go send some data to this channel. Basically, here is the channel that's uploading or you know accessing all the images, or here's the channel that's giving your Twitter stream on the side of your web page, things like that. And if you were using an HTTP2 endpoints um, for this, you would have actually been protected from the from this type of attack. Um, so, so that's a good thing. So for many reasons, both for performance as well as from this particular security problem, start updating to HTTP 2.0. It's a good thing. Um, so are we, also, seeing, are yeah, we just seeing a slow rate of adoption of HTTP 2.0? I'm just curious why we're not there already. If we know there's improvements both from a performance and a security perspective, why are we still using 1.1? Why aren't we just using 2.0 as a default? Yeah, so it's, it's also, I think, it, honestly, I think it's just large organizations are slow to move it's just a, it's an inertia problem so there's the same same argument can be made for TLS 1.3 which has um, the the handshake there is is much better so again you have much more performant um, um, initiating connections with TLS 1.3 as well as it's just a lot harder to misconfigure it there's our, our, our bingo word for the day, um, or, or do things wrong with TLS 1.3. But unless you're dropping like something like a Cloudflare or some service provider that can do that endpoint termination for you, it's, it's just been slower for the server side to push that out there. Because all the browsers, all the mobile devices, all the operating systems support it. So it, it, this isn't right. a case where they're waiting for the client population to get up to speed. It's really we need the service and server endpoints to to get out there. Yeah. And I will note too that um, you know, this is not just a this desync attack. Um, is not just a theoretical attack. If you go out back through the um, go to the show notes and uh, Portswigger wrote up a blog post and some examples of how he went through um, Trello and PayPal. Um, as well as a couple other air, um, uh, services. And if you go and look at the bounty programs for those, you can see that um, he's been, um, James has been poking around these sites since at least January of this year, finding these vulnerabilities. And from what I would guess, um, from looking at HackerOne and BugCrowd reports, making around 10 or 20K off of these types of findings. So that's um, pretty good re research and well-rewarded research in this case, I think. Yeah. And that's also, I think, another segue to pull us into some announcements that Apple, Microsoft, and Google and were Google, making yeah. around, the, yep, around their bug bounty program. So there's a lot of money to be made here. Apple has started up to $1 million. Um, Azure has also talked about bumping it to $300,000 for their top-end types of reports. And Google has also... Um, I think topping out for one million for nominated for you know a best bug of the year type of approach. So just the money right there is pretty awesome. Um, and I want to get your comments on that before we get into some other aspects that some other more technical interesting things they're announcing about their bounty programs. Yeah, I mean we've seen a continual increase in the in the bug bounty programs. Apple. Microsoft and Google making big announcements this week to increase payouts, which, look, this is why we're finding more vulnerabilities, right? These bug bounty programs are actually helping us find these bugs, right? To your point earlier, we see this increase in vulnerabilities. Uh, are those vulnerabilities part of what I have in my environment? Not. And then the whole prioritization is a whole different piece. But these bug bounty programs are definitely identifying the bugs and the vulnerabilities that are out there. 
And look, some of these big vendors are they're, they want to secure their code better, and so they're going to pay more and more money to do it. Uh, I think Apple added some stuff that wasn't covered before with iCloud and a couple of their, the watch and some other services that may not have been covered before under their bug bounty programs. But yeah, you're seeing the dollars here, which is interesting. And the other, the, the dollars are absolutely interesting. And the other aspect I think stands out even more to me is they're actually also really embracing the community and enabling those good faith researchers um, to have better tooling. So Apple actually announced that they will ha have a um, essentially like a, what I can't remember what it was called now, lost my notes, like a device program where they will say here to certain researchers, here is a it's the your security research device. So it's basically an iPhone that has better debugging features available on it. So you can have root, you can have your SSH, you can have better debugging. So here, go forth and actually find some vulnerabilities rather than and they're basically saying we're going to work with you researchers and make it easier for your tooling and your and your for analysis to actually execute and for you to look rather than make it harder for you to actually get into and break apart sort of a tamper resistant type of operating system. Now, <clears throat> it's still important to have all of those um, countermeasures in place, but what they're saying is they're acknowledging that the community is finding good bugs, that they'll pay for good bugs, and for researchers who are demonstrating that they have these types of skills, they'll actually make it easier for them to say, rather than get over the, you know, you must be this tall to ride, we're just going to say, here's the device, go forth and conquer, let's see what you can find. And, and the vendors aren't alone, by the way, because right across from our booth at DEF CON was the Chinese team. They've got bug bounty programs, too. So everybody's going to pay for bugs. The Chinese just might use them for a different cause. But, it, I, I mean, there were I think there were two booths at DEF CON with, for the Chinese on bug bounty programs. And one was right across from us in the vendor area on, on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, I think that's one of the other things is that just going from because I think it was Apple, it went from 500k to a million. Um, so just that alone is also a great way to, you know, disrupt. Uh, sorry, I feel dirty for using that word inside San Francisco, but they're disrupting potentially the vulnerability market space. Because now, if your trade off for selling a vulnerability used to be $1 million to a third party market, um, you know, there's companies in uh, several different countries, um, mm -hmm. France, Israel, um, Italy for a while, but I think that 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 group has moved, and of course China. But now if you can go to the vendor for that amount of money, possibly just go to the vendor. So it's also possibly, you know, a good uh, market pressure on the, you know, third-party payments for, for vulnerabilities. Um, but an additional thing, too, is talking about... Um, uh, the vendors participating, so providing devices, but also Azure was also setting up a security lab that says, hey, here is a dedicated space to go beat up. And so please beat this up. And but you can guess, too, of course, they're going to have monitoring. So they can also, it's a great way for them to improve their ML, their logging, their analysis of what goes on against their devices or their cloud instances. But it's also just a great way to say, Rather than, you know, violating our terms and conditions for our, you know, where our customers actually sit, here's an area to go beat up, 
beat it up and let us know what you found because and that's just another way to make it easier for researchers to come to the vendors themselves rather than to sell it on the aftermarket yeah and that's interesting because microsoft will learn a lot through that process and hopefully come up with better secure baselines to protect against those in the future so that's actually really smart for microsoft to do it that way give them an environment learn in your environment and then hopefully put better protections in place for the rest of your customer base Yep, absolutely. And, and hopefully that will mean here are the actual secure baselines that become better baselines that actually we can legitimately call secure rather than here is the baseline that nobody changes from the defaults that gets popped all the time or has too much privilege, too much data, you know, chance for data exfiltration, data leakage, etc. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I wanted to also wrap up on one final food for thought. And I, I think this ties into what we've been discussing um, even in the last segment. There's this article um, about the culture-driven approach to DevOps transformation. And really this is, I, I guess I'll honestly say, it's a bit more of the same in the sense that it's the people that are your DevOps or DevSecOps team. And it's the people that are where the culture emerges from and where the culture makes a difference. And one of the the, the, the the hot points here was communication. I think that's a, a natural aspect. But also the other point I wanted to highlight is measure what matters. And what I wanted to really emphasize there is once you have a metric, that metric is going to drive behavior because people will realize, ah, this is either what I'm being promoted against. This is what my bonuses are based on. This is what our, you know, uh, this is how our application is being evaluated against, whether it's succeeding or failing. Is it being developed? Is, is that metric just around time to market or is it around quality or even around security? But those, a bad metric can also drive adverse behaviors or undesirable behaviors. So that's one of the things that stood out to me is, yes, that's measure what matters but what you matter, well, sorry, what you measure also conveys what you think matters, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's the communication part, I think, is the biggest one right now. It's it, especially between the development and the DevOps teams and security. That communication has to continue to happen. We've got to come up with better metrics. Uh, we covered a few weeks back some of the interesting metrics. I mean, it was a long article of things. And I think organizations have to figure out what are the most important things they want to measure to reinforce the behavior uh, internally and also integrate security and development together. Uh, those will be challenges over the next few years because, look, we haven't solved this well in our normal security programs, let alone this whole new DevSecOps uh, area either. <laughs> yeah. And the article also links to um, uh, basically a survey that I, I was um, sponsored by Google Cloud or, or created by Google Cloud. And in it, it was highlighting two, two things that stood out to me. One was that the, the, the leaders in basically – those who at least self-attest that they're doing DevOps really well, they say they're competing on quality, software quality. Um, I think quality can actually be an aspect of security, um, but it's interesting to see that as one of the areas that is you know, a metric for them. And only, there, there was another um, aspect of that, there was only 18% strongly agree that um, moving to DevOps has a positive impact on security. And that wasn't that there were a lot of people that disagreed, 
I think it was more a matter of maturity that a lot of teams just weren't seeing that, oh, security can actually become either better or it can actually become a little bit easier because we're dealing with you know, infrastructure as a s- service, which means configuration files, which means people can read them, which means maybe we can reason them a little bit easier. Um, people are still going to make mistakes, but overall, if we do the right things and we get good visibility into all these configurations and these identity management challenges, things can be better. Yeah, definitely agreed. We're, it's, just, it's a maturity thing. We're not there yet. We talk about it all the time. We'll get there. But you're right. The ability to have all those configurations as readable files that I can now parse and look at and understand the interrelationship of and look for stuff is only going to improve the quality and security of not only the infrastructure, but the applications running that infrastructure over time. And that's where we need to get to. Absolutely. And well, I think the um, so I, I think we're also going to get to a point where we look at your 14 or 15 hours of, of interviews that are coming out throughout the rest of the shows underneath uh, Security Weekly. So we'll also be looking forward to learning from all of those. And I want to thank you, Matt, for um, your voice making it through this uh, these two segments after a week in Vegas. I want to thank everyone for listening. And we are going to be back next week on Application Security Weekly.